0: Spar Dr. Lisa Fred Fredman, Rashi's Peshat Revolution, was it an innovation, ex nihilo? Okay, well, we'll begin. Does everyone have a source sheet? Yeah? Okay, great. Rashi, the most famous Jewish Bible commentator of all times, is famous for many things. But one of the most important innovations was to explain the biblical text according to the Peshat interpretation. As he tells us in his comment in Sefer Breshit, and it's here on the PowerPoint, There are many agadic midrashim. And our rabbis have already arranged them in their proper setting, in Breshit Rabbah and in other midrashim. And I have come only for the simple meaning or the literal meaning of the scripture. And agada which resolves the words of scripture with each word stated in the proper framework. And Agadah, which fit into the context and went into the syntax of the verse. Rashi's interest in the literal explanation... Will spark a so-called pshat revolution, which will be carried on and perfected by students in his zayt midrash, such as the Rashbam, his grandson, the Bokhorshor, and others, for approximately two generations. But after two generations, this preoccupation of pshat will slowly ebb away. What sparked this pshat revolution? What sources did Rashi use in order to investigate the straightforward the pshat meaning of the text, or was it innovation ex nihilo? These are the, some of the questions that we are going to investigate today. Thousands of books and articles, or close to thousands, have been written about Rashi's use of Midrash, but a much, much, much smaller number have addressed the question of Rashi's shot sources. So everyone fasten your seatbelt and hold on. We're about to embark upon a very exciting journey that will take us across time and countries to uncover the foundations of Rashi's Pshat commentary. We're going to begin with the Targum, the Aramaic translation of the biblical text. Unklus on the Torah, and Yonatan to the Neviim. Rashi did not have the Aramaic translation to the Ketuvim as he tells us in the Gemara. sheein tirgum baketuvim. Okay, so Rashi did not have the Targum to the Ketuvim. If you look at your source sheets, Okay, we'll start with source number one. We're going to see how Rashi uses the Targum, how the Targum aids him in his Pshad explanation. We'll look at just a few examples uh, to get an idea of categories. Okay, um, in the Pasuk, in Sefer Breshit, source number one. le'ya, Elohim oti ishi. Okay, the word zeved and the word yizbaluni are very difficult words. What do they mean? Okay, I can just read you what the, um, JT, the JPS translation is. God has given me a choice gift. This time, my husband will exalt me. Okay, so on the difficult word Zebed, okay, word that only appears in this pasuk in the Tanakh, what does Rashi write? Tobit's on the left side. Kitargumo. Rashi says, look in the Targum, and the Targum will give you the translation. He doesn't even tell us what the Targum is. On this pasuk, the targum says, tov, a choice, a good portion." We can glean two important pieces of information from this pehush. One, that Rashi assumed that what his reader had the targum, and remember, in the ancient world, we're talking about manuscripts, very, very expensive, but to the halacha of mikra, the targum, okay, that, that people had access to the targums. So that's one thing we can understand from this ver- from this interpretation. And what's the second thing that we can understand? That the people, his target audience, understood what? Understood Aramaic. Of All right? So his Perush, using the work of Targumo, is telling us that this is not to be used for a child in school, just starting out. Okay? That he's teaching people, Talmidecha Chachamim, or people who knew Aramaic and understood Aramaic. Okay, let's go on to source number two. Here again, we're going to be looking at a rare word but not a word that appears only once in Tanakh. In Sefer Malachim, the pasuk says, nivlat al pnei and the carcass of Izevel will be like Domen Al Pnei on the field. What does the word Domen mean? Okay, so Rashi says, Kedomen, Targumo, kizabel. So here, what if, first of all, Rashi says k'targumo, but we're in the Nevi'im, so which Targum is Rashi referring to? Yonatan, okay? Targum Unklis is to the Torah, Targum Yonatan is to the Nevi'im. And here, Rashi actually t- brings what? The word, okay, the word that's found in the Targum, okay, Zevel, okay? So the word Doman is Zevel, dang. If we look at source number three, source number three is a very interesting explanation. Rashi is using the Midrash, the Targum, to try to explain a word that has multiple meanings. And the word is Lishmoah, to hear. In Sefer Brishit, when the brothers decide to throw Yosef in the pit, okay, and to kill him, Yehuda comes forward, and what does Yehuda say? Why kill him? What's a better option? Let's sell him. Okay, and he let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not touch him. After all, he's our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listen. What's the meaning of the word va'yishme'u? Okay, so if we look in Rashi, and I have for, for those who want to follow along with the English, I'll translate, but there's the English here on the board for those that wish. Va'yishme'u, the kiblumine, they accepted his words. The Khol shehu Kabalat Dvarim, every time the word Shmiya, the root Vishmoa means to accept, Kigonze, like in this example, Ukigon Vaishma Israel El Aviv. And another example, Yaakov heartens, hearkens to his father's voice when he tells him to run away. Na means we will do and we will listen. Mitargumin vekabil. The targum uses the word kabil to mean acceptance, of, uh, accepting, listening, accepting. But the kol shehi shmiat but we know that the word lishmoa can have another understanding which is what? The physical what? Hearing of the ear. Not necessarily accepting, just hearing. They heard God's voice or spirit there in the garden. And Rifka hears. We'll skip to the end. There the Targum uses the root, what? Shama. Right? So what's happening here? Rashi is utilizing the Targum to pinpoint the meaning of a word in Tanakh that has multiple meanings. The Targum is a very exacting translation, Targum, and Rashi is utilizing this in order to help the reader understand what the meaning is, and he's teaching us a klal in terms of the Targum. Let's look at number four. In number four, Rashi uses the Targum to differentiate, differentiate between different verb types. In Sefer Dvarim, when Moshe is recounting what happened at Har Sinai, we're told, Okay, Remember what happened then at Har Sinai, so that you will learn to fear me, and your children you will teach. Notice the two bolded words, and they have the same letters. What's the difference between them? The nikud, the vowels. The first one is in the kal, and the second one is in what? Is in the PL form. In order to help the reader understand the difference between these two very, very similar words that are written the same way, what is Rashi write? Yilmedun, yalfun la'atzmam, yilamedun, yalfun la'akhirim. Rashi, What is Rashi saying? He's bringing the text, the Aramaic word, yalfun, which means to learn, and then he adds the Hebrew word, la'atzmam, to help his reader understand that what? The first verb is, to teach themselves to learn. And the second one is what? For others. Now, this is tricky because how do we know that he's quoting the Targum here? If you were just reading through the Parsha and reading Rashi, would you realize he's quoting the Targum? Only if you're sensitive to the fact that what? The words here are Aramaic. at the so in a few moments we're going to discuss the fact that it's very hard to pinpoint how many times Rashi actually utilizes the Targum because sometimes he doesn't say to us, hey, hold on, reader, I'm about to quote the Targum. And the last thing I just want to point out regarding the Targum um, is that Rashi doesn't always accept the Targum. Rashi is very, very selective. Rashi has criteria that he chooses in order to choose a perush that fits in to the wording and the setting of the pasuk. And sometimes he rejects him. And here's an example number five. Okay, in, in Sefer Breshit, we have a listing of descendants. Okay? So the question is: what is what do these names? Ashrim So what does Rashi say? Shame, Umo. These are the names of the heads of these of nations. Ashrim And then he goes on to say. The Targum shall Hamikra. And the Targum of Uncles I cannot accept why? It doesn't fit in to the wording or the setting of the verse. Does he tell us what Unklus says? No. Here again he assumes that what? The reader can read Unklus on his own. Okay? Unclus just to tell you, I put it for you in English underneath in Hebrew. Unklus explains the words ashurim, uletushim, ulu umim as adjectives. Okay, they will dwell in tents. Island dwellers and camping in caravans and not necessarily as names. All right, so what do we see here? How, now, how often does Rashi use the targum? If we're talking about the building blocks of his pshat commentary, how often does he use them? Okay, so if we look for the code words that Rashi is saying, it's a midrash, kitargumo, targumo, metarguminan, yonatan, Unklus, somewhat about 600 times, but the number is much larger than that. Because many a time, he just brings the Aramaic without telling us what? Without using any of these code words to say that it's the Targum. Um, according to um, modern scholarship in terms of the time period, um, both Targum, Unklis, and Yonatan were written in Eretz Yisrael, but they were redacted in Babel in Babylonia, somewhere between the 5th and 7th centuries. Um, in the introduction to our next source that Rashi uses, we're moving from Eretz Yisrael, and we're moving to Spain. And I want to give you a little bit of background information regarding the period that we're going to be talking about. Um, we're, in, we're now in the city of Cordova, Spain, and times are good for the Jewish people under Arab rule. Arabic has replaced Aramaic as a spoken language for a large segment of the Jewish community. And the high regard of the Arabs for um, their language, and the great attention they pay to proper grammatical usage is being carried over to the way the Jews look at Hebrew. The Muslims believe that the Arabic of the Quran represented linguistic elegance, and that stimulated a similar movement among the Jews to promote the Tanakh as the epitome of literary excellence. Jewish scholars sought to understand the Bible text by analyzing its grammar down to the smallest detail and by defining the precise definition of every word that appears in Tanakh. And Cordoba becomes a hub for linguistic studies. The Arab caliphs of Cordoba, during the second half of the 10th century, they import Arab scholars to the city, and, and they pay for them to study, and they turn the city into an important center of Arabic research. And so, too, the Jewish families, Chazay ibn Shaprut, Culture, scholarly, wealthy, and powerful, he becomes the leading patron of Hebrew studies in Cordova. And the city of Cordova, Spain, in the tenth, second half of the 10th century becomes the Mecca for Jewish scholars. Menachem Ben Saruk, born in Tordaza, and he moves to Cordova, and he becomes, he becomes Hazai ibn Shiprut's secretary. And he is, written, he is hired by Hazai to write a work on the holy language Hebrew. And Menachem then compiles the first Hebrew Hebrew dictionary in the history of the Jewish people, Menachem ben Saruk. And this dictionary is called the Machberet. Um, and in it, Menachem groups together, Lechaber, Machberet. He groups together, shorashim, according to their various meanings, all drawn from the verses of the Tanakh. The list of the roots and their meanings is done in alphabetical order, like a dictionary. And preceding the dictionary is an introduction which surveys important principles and outstanding features of Hebrew grammar. In his dictionary, he alludes to, he gathers together more than 12,000 quotes from the Tanakh. Um, It's not the first Hebrew dictionary. The first Hebrew dictionary was put together by Rassag, Rassag Rav Gaon, but it was done in Arabic. It was called the Agron. Um, And Rav Gaon... looked at Arabic at times to help him explain a Hebrew word that was not understandable, which was only mentioned once in Tanakh, and Menachem refuses to look at other languages to try to explain the biblical text. He's very strict about the fact that he wants to explain the Tanakh by, with the Tanakh, looking at its context. Menachem's Machbere, this dictionary, becomes a very, very, very important source for Rashi's Peshat commentary, which we're going to see now. So, if we look now at source number one under B1, okay, it was a dictionary. We're going to, um, in a moment, I'm going to show you, first of all, to show you a picture of the dictionary, the modern, okay, Machberet Menachem, the dictionary. There is a critical edition available as well. Okay, so let's see how this dictionary worked, and let's see how Rashi utilized it. Okay, an example number one, it's a famous, um, it says in Sefer Breshit that Haran died in the presence of his father Terach in Ur-Kastim. All right, and we're not going to read, Rashi brings two explanations. I, 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 here on the board, it's in English. On your source sheet, it's in Hebrew. The first is a Midrash that we're familiar with, many of us. Why was it called Ur-Kastim? Okay, so the famous Midrash that Abraham was Avraham was, thrown into the furnace, he came out alive. They turn to his brother Haran and say, Haran, are you with God? Are you with Avram? Are you with are you with idols? And what does he say after Avram was saved? And um, with Avram, at that point, he had been sitting on the fence until then. They threw him into the fire, and what happens to him? He dies. And that's why it's called Ur Kastim, Ur from what word? ish, fire. Okay, then Rashi adds a second explanation. Okay, on our sheet here in Hebrew, and it's there on the board in English. And Menachem explained. Or Menachem. Machberet Menachem. Or Kastim. What does it mean, Or Kastim? Bik'at Kastim, the valley of the Kastim. V'chein, the Urim, Kibdu Hashem. So too, the root, Or, in the verse in Sefer Yeshayahu. Um, in the valley, we'll honor God. V'chein, and so too the verse in Yeshayahu, a hole of a viper. Kolchor, v'neka, amok, kavui ur. And a hole, or deep valley, is called an ur. Okay, so what is he doing, Rashi? Rashi is quoting this medieval dictionary. And let's take a look. Let's look at our dictionary. If you look on the board here, this is a copy of the dictionary. Okay, a dictionary goes by the roots of the Hebrew language. Minachem. Ben Saruk combed through the Tanakh. His basis is only the Tanakh. And he's put together roots. And under the root R, okay, Aleph Resh, he tells us, Mitzchaleik leSheva Machlokot. There are seven meanings for the root, the two-letter root, Aleph Resh. And if we go down to meaning number Revi'i, where the arrows are, can you see in the back, or is it not so clear? Not so clear? Okay. All righty, but what does it tell us the number E Or Kasteem? Al the Ba'rim Kabdu. That's a verse from Sefer Yeshayahu that we see what? Rashi, Rashi. brings in Sefer Breshit on what we just read. Al M'Orotsif sifoni. we just saw that in Sefer Breshit. Mine kaim, vihagavim vitsurim. Okay, so they were talking about um, valleys. And then he goes on to say, v'or kastim second arrow, ko inyanu kastim, may kastim. Okay, so Rashi's explanation is coming from what? Coming from this dictionary. And he tells us, minachem. Okay, he quotes the Machberet the of minachem, And what, yeah? Why does he quote uh, Menachemia? Good question. Excellent. I thought of the same question. I don't have an answer. Excellent, excellent question. Um, what's exciting is that Machberet minachem is online. And you, as a serious Rashi learner, because you're in this class, okay, can actually access it yourself. If you look under the name on ben Saruk, I brought you what? I brought you where you can find it. ready? And And let's look at another example, and maybe we'll try to maybe do it right now very quickly. If not, I brought it. Okay, another example, say for Yeshayahu, we'll look under the, one, on, on the right, one right under it. Okay? The verse says, okay, hold on. I think it... And on the board here, we have the pasuk, a very difficult pasuk, in say for there's nihu, Neharot... Dalilu v'charevu ye'orei matzor, kane v'suf kamelu. Okay, the JPS translation. Channels turn foul as they ebb, and Egypt's canals run dry. Read and rush shall decay. The charvu is run dry. Not really clear how they're translating the word dalilu here. Okay, it doesn't seem very clear. But what does Rashi say regarding the word dalilu? What does Rashi say on our sheet? Bemachberet. Notice, here he doesn't say Menachem, here he says what? Machberet. And that's the beauty of Rashi. Rashi's not boring. Rashi quotes sources in many, many different ways. Dalalu, bemachberet imdalhu. What does that mean? Bemachberet it's in the dictionary under what? The roof dal with the verse im dalhu. And let's find it. Okay? Exactly. So here <laughs> dal machlakot. Menachem is telling us there are three options. Here it is, v'im um, dalhu, and then right at, and we all have here our word dalalu, the charev. Okay. So what do we see here? Rashi is using. Rashi had the dictionary. Rashi is using the dictionary, and the dictionary is very, very important for Rashi in order to what? To understand Hebrew roots. The backbone of the Hebrew language is what? Are the roots. All righty? Let's now... Um, what happens when he has, we have a word in Tanakh where it only appears once? Very, very difficult at times to what? Explain what that word means. The, um, the medieval commentators were very preoccupied with these words that were only mentioned once because we saw that, in, for instance, in Spain... We had the relit, they're trying to re-vigorate the, invigorate the Hebrew language, like Eliezer ben Yehuda. And they wanted to make, bring it alive again. They were writing poetry. When you write poetry, you need to have a large vocabulary. If you're not willing to borrow words from other languages, what do you have to do? You have to utilize every single word that's in the Hebrew Tanakh. So they spend a lot of time and energy trying to understand every single word so that they can expand the Hebrew language. All right? So, they were so preoccupied with these words that Rasadrigon was the first to write a whole treatise on the 70 words that appear only once in Tanakh. What was the only drawback of Rasad's work? It was in Arabic. Okay? Tafsir, Al Sabin, I don't know Arabic. Okay? So if it was in Arabic, it was a closed book, basically, for Rashi and for those in Europe that did not speak Arabic. Okay, so what do you do? So what does Menachem do? Okay, what does Menachem do with the Hebrew words that appear only once? I just want to point out that with in this work, he utilizes very heavily Mishnaic Hebrew. Okay, if the word appears only once in Tanakh, he will look in the Mishnah to see if that word has a um, similar word. He will look in Arabic and Aramaic to try to find out what that word means. Right? Menachem will not do that. Menachem believed in the holiness of the Hebrew language dictated by God, and therefore only from the Hebrew and only from the context can, what? can we explain what a word means. Okay, so if we turn the page okay, and look at the next example, Menachem here under the root Gimel bet lists, all of the words that appear only once in Tanakh, this is only a partial listing. All in all, if you go through his machbert, there are about 150 of them. Okay, And then even Rashi and Sefer Shmuel, um, during the Avshalom Rebellion, when we have people running away and they're hiding in the Michal Maim, okay, the word Michal Maim, it's not clear what it is. E'ni yodea, what does Rashi say? I'm on the top of page two. E'ni yodea pitaron lo kal. Okay, Rashi says, if you look in Menachem's dictionary, under the root kal, yes, hold on, there are 14 divisions of the dictionary, but in nowhere appears what? This word. And what does Rashi say? U pitrono lefi inyano. What does that mean? How do we understand the word? From its context. Kimoshi shibbolet nahar. It means the vortex of a river. Okay, so Rashi is you. Now, what did Menachem do? Well, he didn't know the definition of a word. He says here in the beginning, those of you who are in the back will not be able to see it. He says, Ein I'm on the end of the last line. lamila This word has what? No other similar word in the Tanakh. Aval yore aleha hu. But rather, her, its context will explain its meaning. Alrighty, so Ein lo dimyon, there's no other word. Ha-inyan, the context. And we're going to see Rashi right here. A, Rashi says on our verse, ain't dimio, Odea pitaron, we'll see that in the next one. no inyano. Rashi heavily borrows what? Even the terminology, okay, that Manachem is using from context. If we look at the next example, okay, which is a very interesting one. Okay, and say for Shmuel, all right, we have a verse, it's here on the on the board. I don't think it's on the sheet, okay. VeKalato Eshet Pinchas Hara Lalat. All right, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Pinchas, was with child, about to give birth. When she heard the report that the Ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she was seized by labor pains and she crouched down and gave birth. The word Lalat. What does that word mean? Okay, but what's missing? David. Okay, so let's see what Rashi says. What does Rashi say? Lalat. Al karcho, And the English here for those who want to read the English along with me. Al We are forced to say laledet It means to give birth. lo dimyon, which means we have no other example of this. O menachem bechelak yilala. Okay, and menachem put it in the section of wailing yilala Okay, all right. It's in this connection with the word yilala because wailing, because childbirth is painful and so on. What is Rashi saying? One letter, One letter roots. And this he also learns from Menachem. If we look under the letter, lamid, okay, this is the machbarit menachem. Okay, you're looking at something which was originally put together. In the 900s in Cordova, Spain. All right? Under Lamed, what do we have? Go to this. Ki al mishkevotam lalat. All righty? Under one-letter roots. Menachem had one-letter roots, two-letter roots, three-letter roots, four-letter roots. And Rashi, what? Rashi, this is the basis of his grammar, of his understanding of the root. Only with the students of Menachem, his name was Yehuda Chayud, where we start this concept of what? Of a three-letter root. Okay? So it's fascinating here. We see Rashi heavily what? Leaning upon Menachem. But remember, Rashi is very particular. And just like with the Targum, there are times that what? He disagrees. And that's example here, number two. He rejects Menachem. Okay? and say for Shemot, when we're talking about Arami the verse says, Okay? If he did not, I'm reading you again the JPS translation. If he did not do it by design, but it came about by an act of God, I will assign a place for he where he can flee. The word. Tzada, okay, what does that word mean? The word sada. Okay, so I have the English on the board for those that want to follow along in the English. Okay, Rashi says, now the word Sada is very similar to a word that we know from Sefer Bereshi that has to do with hunting. Said. What is that? Side. Okay so, okay, so the question is, what's the difference? So that's what Rashi's going to discuss here. Rashi says, Sada Lashon oreid. The word Sada means to ambush. V'chein omer v'atak sodeh et nafshi l'kachta. And so too the verse he lay you um, lay in the ambush for my soul to take. we can not say that Sada is Lashon Hatzad Said. We cannot say what? That it means the same thing as what? Hunting. Chayot Nofel the Why? Because the verb here form, what does it have at the end? A hay? And with hunting, there is no hay. The shame the verbo Okay, and the noun form is sa'id. Okay, and he goes on to reject, okay, to reject this idea of connecting the two. Go now to the third line where it's underlined. O menachem chibro b'chelech tzad <inaudible> tsaid. Menachem, he's saying what? Put it in with the idea of hunting. Ve'ein ani modello. And I do what? I do not agree with him. Okay, but now Rashid goes on to do something which is really unusual. He says, okay, Menachem, I'm going to find you a better place in your dictionary and to place it. He goes on to say, Okay, And he's now going to propose another place where he thinks it's, better, it's a better place to place it. But he goes on to conclude, Which means what? I still don't feel good about it. And I brought you here again, Okay, this was the original place, Hamishi, okay, Hatsad Zaid Vayavelo V'asher Sada, okay, where the arrow is, okay, that's where Menachem placed it originally, What Rashi then, the second arrow is what? Where Rashi proposed it would be a better choice, okay, and Machlaka what? Number two, but at the end, what does he decide, what does Rashi tell us? None of them. Okay, so we see here Rashi again. Rashi, um, the Machberet Menachem is very, very important to Rashi, but like we saw with the Targum, Rashi is very particular with with his criteria. And in every case, he analyzes and draws his own conclusions. Um, Things were really good for Menachem in Cordova until a rival came to town. And that rival's name was Dunash. Ben Livrat. Has anyone ever heard of Dunash? Okay, does anyone know where we all know Dunash from? From? Oh, okay. Rechavia, the street names. Actually, it's a great place to teach. I always thought the greatest way to educate students would be to take them to the streets in Yerushalayim and teach them history that way. Okay, that takes a lot of money. You have to have a really good taxi for that. Alrighty? In any event, this is Dunash Ben Livrat and I heard in the back someone where we know him from correct. Dror Yikra, okay. The first letters of Dror Yikra. Okay. Well, in Wikipedia, that this is an, a picture I got for Dunash. Okay. So you can. <laughs> um, um, we know him from Dror Yikra. He was a medieval poet, um, and uh, born in Fez, and then moves to Cordova. Um, I forgot to mention, just regarding Menachem, I wrote it here on the sheet for you. I really wanted the sheet for you to be able to take home and have information afterwards, next to Menachem's name, that he quotes him more than 190 times in his Perush to the Tanakh. Okay? Menachem, more than 190 times. It's more than that, um, and I'll speak about why everything's approximate numbers. Okay? So anyway, Dunish was born in Morocco. Um, He... um, we also know Dunish, one moment, from another place, from a famous piyut. What is the second piyut? What do we know? From Sheva Brachot, right? That's also Dunish, the acrostic of his name. Okay? So, um, anyway, Dunish, he writes an attack on the Machberet of Menachem, and he highlights 180 mistakes, or so-called criticisms, that he has against the dictionary. The criticisms are not listed in logical order, meaning not in the order of the dictionary, the entries of the Machveret, but rather like in a haphazard order, as though Dunash kept on going and rereading the Machveret and each time listing problems, which he found. And Rashi quotes from Dunash approximately 50 times um, in his Perush to the Tanakh. Let's take a look. If we look at number C, okay, for the understanding of words. Now understand, whenever he quotes Dunash, why is Dunash speaking? At all. Because he's refuting whom? Menachem. Menachem. Okay? So when we read Dunash, in the back of our minds, we have to realize, oh, Menachem must have another explanation. But Rashi just mentions Dunash. And here in our example from Sefer Yoel, Ta'rog, Rashi writes, Titzak. Okay? It means to, to cry out. Kasher patar Dunash. Okay? As Dunash explained, and then he goes on to explain that each animal has its own verb in Hebrew, arad la'aylim, kinoham, like roaring, l'shhalim, to lions, v'ge'a l'eglim, and lowing, to calves, v'tsaha l'shutsim, and whinnying of horses. Okay? A second use of dunish by Rashi, and a very important one, was his source of Arabic. We said that Menachem was not willing to what? Look at other languages in order to explain words in the Tanakh? Okay, but Dunish was right, and if we look here in source under Dunish number two, I just quote you two examples um, regarding the um, the begadim in Sefer Bidekhuna, okay, in Sefer Shmot. It says Velo Yizach, Nituk, velashon Aravihu Kedivrei Dunish Ben Livrat. Okay, lo um, Yizach do not you can't attach it, um, and it's Lashon, Nituk sense means language of severance. Okay, he's quoting Dunash. Dunash is bringing him the Arabic. And so to the next example from Sefer Tihilim, Chalifot Lashon <laughs> Kach Pirsho Dunash. Dunash explains this is an Arabic word. Um, it means hammers. <laughs> it's a carpenter tool. What does Menachem incidentally say in this verse? He says it's a weapon. Okay. Um, Rashi at times quotes what? The two of them, because after all, Dunash, Why does Dunish write his book as a criticism of Menachem? Okay, and at least thirty times we have Rashi quoting the two of them, and I just brought you two examples here. Um, there are many, many more in Sefer Daniel. V'omar lahovada. Okay, v'yomer lahaavid. Vav shel Omar, The vav, the first letter of the word v'omar, nit atzmo Menachem v'dunash. Regarding the zvav, manachem, and dunash, what? Disputed. Okay, and if we go to the next example from Sefer Yeshayahu, b'shepsef ketzef, manachem. Okay, a little wrath. That's ready ex- an explanation of the word. What does it mean? Manachem patar chariyaf. Manachem explains the kindling of wrath. V'dunash amar And dunash explains a little wrath. Kimo berega katan v'chein yonatan. Okay, so Rashi is bringing both. Um, Dunash's criticisms of Menachem give rise to the hottest, one of the hottest debates in the Middle Ages. Dunash's criticisms arouse Menachem's enemies who begin to complain to Chazai ibn Sheeproot, the patron, about Menachem. And Chazai becomes, becomes very angry with Menachem to such a degree that he commanded that Menachem's house be burnt down on Shabbat. Menachem is kicked out. He's beaten and imprisoned, and he dies at the early age of about 50. All this is real, okay? This could be a Hollywood movie. It really could. I would, you know, if there's a a budding Steven Spielberg out here or whatever, okay, this could be a Hollywood movie um this summer my husband and i we were um we had, we were in spain we were in cordova spain i just want to point out that in the back of the room is professor david berger it's an honor that he's here with us i don't know professor berger if you know this but when we were in spain we actually met your daughter and we spent the day together in toledo spain on a tour all right anyway we were in toledo and then we decided we wanted to go to cordova and really we wanted to go to cordova because that's where menachem and lived and we just wanted to walk the old quarter. Also, the Rambam was, was born there. Walk the old quarter. And we were looking for Menachem. My husband really wanted to find Menachem's burnt-down house. Okay, but, And he kept on like, taking pictures of anything burnt-down. But clearly, we're talking about the Arabic period, the year 900. There was no house there. But it was really a very amazing feeling to be walking around Cordoba. In any event, what's going on here? What lies behind this debate? Okay, this is a picture of the Dunash's work. Okay, just so you have it. Okay, well, Allah are behind this be. Okay, so there are real hermeneutical differences. Dunash is not online. Dunash is not online. Menachem is. Yeah, unfortunately he's not. Okay, there are differences, be- grave differences between Menachem and Dunash. First of all, kri uchtiv. We know that in the Tanakh sometimes the word is written one way, but chazar, the mesorah, what? Reads it a different way. Okay? Menachem does not accept the Um even in the cases where the text might say lo with an alis, and we're supposed to read it what? Lo with a vav, and that's a very big difference. One means no, and one means his or his. Dunash does accept the kriyuch'tiv. Inverting letters, sikul otiyot. Okay? Um, does not, Menachem does not accept that, whereas Dunash does. Switching of letters, chimuf otiyot, right? Um, letters can switch. Menachem is very strict about the switching of letters. Only Ehavi, the le- those letters can switch, and Sin and Samach. Shin and Samach. Dunash accepts the switching of letters. Comparison with Arabic we talked about already, Menachem does not accept. Uh, Dunash does. Comparison with Aramaic and Mishneic Hebrew, Menachem has a restricted use, whereas what? Dunish uses it very openly. So we see that Dunash is actually following the methods initiated by Rav Sajigon and the traditional rabbinic interpretation. Whereas, what? Ren Menachem demands full respect to the text, its grammatical form. The explanation of a difficult word should emerge from the text itself, the context, vocalization, and intended parallelism of the sentence. We do not need to seek in other languages a solution of the problem of the Holy Tongue. So we have here a real, very deep seated debate that's going on. Is that explicit in his text? Is what explicit? What you just said. No, this is what scholars say about him, but when you read through his text, okay? And we're going to now see one or two problematic explanations of Menachem, just one or two, there are more, which Dunash aroused Dunash's anger. Okay? One is on the famous verse. Lo right? Do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. What does the word Gedi mean? An animal. A kid, right? Where does Menachem in his put Gedi under God? He says here. Hatshi'i, the ninth division. Lo Tse Gedi Pitrono fi inyano. We're going to learn from the context. He says. Girgare Peyrot. Okay, he says that what does the word Gdim mean? Choice produce, choice fruit. Okay, and he says that he learns that from the context. Why does he learn from the context? Look on the right. What does the beginning of the verse talk about? Bikurim. What are Bikurim? Fruits. Okay, so that's how he explains the word. Now, I know. Good, good question. Okay. Okay. And we're gonna—I'll get back to your points in a, in a minute or two. But we see that this comment might be halachically misleading for somebody. Okay. I want to bring you one other problematic um, example from the Machberet. There are others. I'm just trying to give you different examples, and that has to do with low and low. Okay. Regarding kosher animals. All right. What does it say in Sefer Vayikra? But these you will eat among the wing swarming things that walk on fours. All that. Now the text says what? Don't have. But what does the Masora teach us? That have. Above their feet, joint, legs. Okay? So the Masora says, don't read it as lo, lamed aleph. Read it as what? Lamed vav. What, is, I know it's a, what does Menachem say? Lo, lamed aleph. He brings what? Asher lo, Kerayim, he brings our verse. Hema. What does Baal mean? No. Okay? What is Dunish say regarding this? O p p taron You switched it around. Okay? You switched it around. What's allowed you're saying is not allowed, and so on and so forth. Halachically misleading. Okay? So in a sense, what is the accusation here? That Menachem is that there has cowright leanings. Okay? He explains the text as it is, only as it is, and doesn't have reverence for what? For Jewish tradition. Okay? Okay, good. We're going to get that in a second. All righty. To the defense, thank you very much. To the defense, the machberet is not a halachic work. What is it? It's a dictionary. It's not a halachic treatise. And second of all, if he was a Karait or he had leanings, how could Rashi have quoted him so many hundreds of times? And regarding that, we can answer that Rashi, what, living in Christian Europe, was very, very, very far removed from this whole pull or debate going on regarding the Karaites. This debate between Menachem and Dunash, the hottest debate, one of the hottest debates in the Middle Ages, will continue on. It's an ongoing debate. We have Menachem and we have Dunash. And then we're going to have three students of Menachem who are going to write a treatise what? Defending. defending Menachem. And then we're going to have one student of Dunash who's going to what? Defend Dunash. And then we're going to have Rabbeinu Tam who also writes defending Menachem. Rabbein Tam, Rashi's what? Grandson. So even to Rabbeinu Tam, if he's defending some of the teachings of Menachem, linguistically, what is that saying to us? He also wasn't aware of these accusations. And then we have what? have Yosef Kimchi, who now is going to defend Dunash. All right? And it doesn't end there. And then in the, in the 18th, 19th century, we're going to have modern scholars. Okay? Shadal believes that Menachem was not leaning towards Ka'arism, whereas Gretz will, yes. Okay? This is an ongoing Pumus. Which is really, which is really something. It's really something amazing. Um, <laughs> if you look on your source sheet, okay. I just want to, before we have the source sheets, just I want to know the long-term effects to here on the board of this debate were favorable <laughs> to the growth of the scientific study of the Hebrew language. Alrighty, um, we'll just end off this little section here with the words of uh, San Bedelosis. This San Bedelosis has put out critical editions of both Dunash's work and also Menachem. The differences of approach between Menachem and Dunish's schools are based both on the linguistic perspective of defending the proximity of the languages and the possibility of a comparative study, as well as on theological grounds. Dunish relies more on the traditional rabbinic interpretation, while Menachem underlines the uniqueness and excellency of the sola scriptura, whose divine language cannot be compared with any other human work. I ask you, as a rhetorical question, could the same thing happen today? Could the same thing happen today? Okay. Um, so we've seen, to summarize our first part of our lecture, um, how much time? Um, okay. Um, to summarize the first part of our, of our shiur today, in terms of predecessors, that both the Targum and the works of Anacham and Dunish are the most significant sources for Rashi's Peshat commentary. They aided Rashi in better understanding and formation of the biblical root and the meaning of the biblical word. Now we're going to move on to contemporary scholars, contemporary sources for Rashi. Okay, we're on the bottom of page two. Yeah, Rashi's contemporary, correct. Um, We have to, okay, we've got to move quickly. All righty? At approximately the age of 30, age of 20, I'm sorry, Rashi went um, to Ashkenaz, to Germany, to the Rhineland Yeshivot, And he learned there. He first learned at the famous yeshiva of Magensa. um, And scholars believe he was there for about five years. And his teacher of Magensa was of Yaakov Ben Yakar, who the Rashbam, his grandson, states that Yaakov Ben Yakar was Rashi's teacher of Talmud and Bible. Um, And then, when Yaakov Ben Yakar dies, he stays a little bit longer in the yeshiva of Magensa. And then he moves to the yeshiva of Vermaiza, a younger yeshiva of worms, And there, his primary teacher was Rabbeinu Yitzchak Halevi. Unfortunately, we don't have any quotes in Rashi's Bible commentary from his earlier teacher, Rav Yaakov Ben Yakar, but we do have two quotes where Rashi quotes his teacher, um, Rav Yitzchak Halevi, and I want to just review them with you because they're significant. The first quote is from Sefer Mishle, and that's on the bottom of page two. In Sefer Mishle, it says... The lazy man buries his hand, we're not sure what that means. He will not even bring it to his mouth. Okay, so the question is, what is the word salachat mean? Now, we're all going to say, in modern Hebrew, a plate. Okay, but let's see. What does Rashi write? I heard in the name of Rabbi Yitzhak Khalevi. Bit salachat, the plate, oh one second, I have it for those who want. Oh it's in English on the next page for those who want, right? But salachat, um, the word salachat, bisha'at hatsena the the time of cold and, and frost, al shakor Because the cold and the frost they crack and they split the hands. So according to Rabbeinu Yitzhak what what is the word salachat mean? It means in the winter, when the hands are being what? Cracked and split. Okay, it doesn't mean a plate. Um, what's interesting about this quote is that this pursuit from Sefer Mishle is never mentioned in the Talmudic discourse, according to Professor Avram Grossman. That means that... Ra, um, when Rav Enyu Yitzchak is mentioning this Pesuk in Sefer Mishle, it's not because it's listed in the Gemara. We know very often in yeshivas, how do yeshiva bachers note Tanach? Because the Talmud. It's not mentioned in the Talmud, which means it's being discussed because it's being discussed. So that Sefer Mishle was being learned in yeshiva in worms. We know that Sefer Mishle was a very mo- very popular book in the Middle Ages, unlike today. Um, second thing, which is interesting, is that the perush that Rabbeinu Yitzchak Halevi is giving is what? Is, is, he's looking at the word and getting to the root and ex, trying to explain what it means. It's close to what? We're talking about Pshuto Shal mikra. The second source from Rabbi Yitzchak Halevi from Sefer Shnuel um, is more of an Agadic explanation. It's important just for the beginning. How does he start the perush? Shamati b'shem Rabbeinu Yitzchak Halevi. What's important about the way he quotes his teacher, Rabbeinu Yitzchak Khalevi? He's not quoting it, he's quoting somebody that's quoting. Him. Excellent. In the name of, meaning, Rashi did not hear this Torah when he was studying in Worms. He comes back at the age of forty to France. He leads the community. In his response, so we know that he goes back once after five years. He had a very burning halacha question that he wanted halakha that he felt he had to change and he would never change before what? meeting with his teacher, and he writes he would, that he was planning to go again, but by the time he planned to go again, Rabenius Kalev was no longer alive. Okay? So these teachings are coming to him orally. They're coming orally through students. Um, scholars have ideas. These, that he's, who's, who's the conduit for these comments? What's important here is when you're learning Rashi, constantly to look at, are we talking about a written source or what? An oral source. Menachem, Dunash, and the Targum, written sources. Rabbi Yitzchak Kalevi is what? It's an oral source. Let's move on to the next group. The next group of people are called the Potarim. Ha-Potarim. And they're mentioned 12 times in Rashi's commentary to Tanakh. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Ha-Potarim. Okay. Who are? Okay. Who are these Potarim? So if you look at example number one, from Sefer Vayikra, Tnuch, Tnuch. What does Rashi say? Ge der ozen. It's the middle section of the ear. tnuch lono dali. I don't know what. I don't know what the word tnuch really means. The hapotrim corinlo tendrus, and the potrim call it tendrus, and in, in, in that's old French, okay, and it means cartilage. Okay, he's quoting the potrim. Okay, and the potrim are giving what? an old french word now before i started investigating all this how many of you thought here along with me that rashi was the one who started this whole idea of lazim of old french words right you think that rashi started this tradition but we're going to see that this tradition predated rashi rashi is quoting a group of people plural hapotarim who have given what an old french word Let's go on to the next source. The next source is really long. I brought it here, here in English on the board. Um, we don't have much time, so we're going to have to just look. Um, this, the pasuk in Uvadia is basically saying that there are two groups of Jews that are going to go to Galut. One is going to Tsarfat, and the other is going to Svarad, right? And if we look in Rashi, um, what does Rashi say in the second line? The Omrim hapotarim Tsarfat who hamalchut Haze, shekorin. Franca. Svarat, Yonatan, Aspamia. Okay, so Rashi is saying that what is Sarfat? Well, the Potarim, what do they say? It's this, okay, it's this Mamlachat, this kingdom, which is called what? It's called France. So these Potarim are people that are clearly what? Living, right? Living in this area, living in France. We have old French words. In, 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 that they're not old French. To them, it was French <laughs> words that they're bringing in. Okay, look at the next perush. Look at the next. In Sefer Mishlei, it says, damim nafsho." Bloodthirsty men hate the blameless, but the upright seek them out. The words nafsho generally in Tanach have a negative connotation. nefesh. Okay, what does Rashi say? Lashon chiba, term of endearment. U medume'a ani shezeh And what's similar? When David says to Aviatar, Shva iti al tira'a ki asher yivakesh et nafshi yivakesh et nefshacha. Stay with me um, and I will protect you. Mi sheyigmo'u li chesed, yigmo'u Whoever will do chesed to me will do to you. Ve'ein hapotrim modimli. Okay? And they do what? Do not agree with me. Okay, has a negative connotation. Okay, so therefore, what do we? Is it? It's even possible that what? It's possible that there was what personal contact? Okay, between Rashi. We don't. We don't. You don't have to say that from these words, but it's a possibility. And look at now the next source in Sefer Yecheskel. Rashi Lo Yihye Veshamati Bolish Shonot Rabot. I heard many explanations, languages velo And I saw what? In the books of what? Interpretations. What is this telling us? That they wrote books. These potarim wrote books. Who are these potarim? Who are they? Okay, so um, a famous Rashi scholar, Lifshitz, in his works, he writes the interpreters were teachers of Chumash. The notebooks they kept provided a source for the definitions of words and the meanings of verses. Okay, so they're teachers of chumash, and we can add, of course, that they're living in the area of France because why? They're incorporating what? Old French words. Okay, but we want to go, we want to go a step further. Okay, if you, look, if you look at the next sources, the next two sources, regarding the la'azim, old French. Libun, liba, in in al-chulim. What does the Gemara say? Rashi say? Beor chachamim nikra libun, motim The Talmud uses the idiom of white hot, but how do the French explanations explain it? Red hot. Okay? And notice la loazim, we're talking about the plural, loazim. And look at the next source. Rashi from Sefer Yechaskel, deaga. It's when the, it's describing the matzor, the, the seed of Jerusalem, and, and the cheskel is saying they're going to eat What does Rashi say? Ansa b'laaz, anxiety, fear, and then dopter. In our language, in our dialect, what does it mean? Frey. So what does this tell us? There were different what? There were different dialects. There were different dialects. Okay, so um, just very quickly, because we, we have to move. Okay, we're just going to skip all this, unfortunately. All righty. Um, we have found, we're going to move forward a bit and move back. There are glossaries from the 13th century. Glossaries, ongoing glossaries of the Tanakh, which, with biblical words and Old French. Okay, the famous one is the Leipzig glossary. That's the one that is most complete. Um, I, for example, what do these look like? Okay, for instance, on a verse in Sefer Mishle, mm-hmm. Laoukashte Banot, have have. Leech has two daughters, give, give. Okay, that's a very difficult pursuit. Look at the diary, okay, the uh, glossary on the bottom here. Okay, I'm just going to do it very quickly. The, oh, sorry, sorry. the glossary here, it's word 16,674. It has the Hebrew word, it has the French laws transliterated, urbanic explanation, more modern French. The French lies in Latin letters, a German lies, transliterated. This is from the 13th century. There are 14 existing uh, manuscripts. Most of them are not complete. Okay? We have these glossaries from, there was a running translation of the Bible into Old French. The Jews, the, the source that I just skipped, but I'll go back just for one second. It's important. Oh no, forget it. I have to go through all the thingies. The last source told us, that in the stai nikra dacha Targum in France, what did they used to do? French. French. Okay, the French. They did not. They many were not proficient in Hebrew. We have these ongoing glossaries, and this is one of them. And this is a picture of the glossary. If you want to see what it actually looks like, you can see the columns. Okay, the page from the glossary. This is Hebrew. This is this is a manuscript. Yes. Okay. So Professor Babanitz, who won the Pras Yisrael for his work for all his work. He believes, okay, that these glossaries, French translations of biblical words and phrases that aided the teachers and public translators working in synagogues, translating the Parshat and HaKtara into Old French, I called it the Art Scroll Medieval French series, right? <laughs> these, okay, they're from the 13th century, but they existed in Rashi's time, similar glossaries that have been lost, and these are the Sifre HaPitronot. This is his theory. The Potari were schoolmasters who taught the Bible to the young and not so young in their mother tongue. These potarim continued producing glossaries for all the books of the Bible until their expulsion from France in 1306. Banit believes that when Rashi brings the laws in his commentary, he is often refuting or refining the laws found in the glossaries of his time. These are the potarim. We don't have time now to talk about Ramanachim Chalbo. It seems like Rav Menachem Chalbo, who's quoted by Rashi 10 times, was one of these potarim. I'm giving you homework. You take this home, okay? Look up these sources. And he learned about the teachings of Rav bin ben Chalbo orally through Rav Yosef Kara, who was his um, friend, colleague, and so on. Okay, we're going to skip now to the last page. Um, students. Um, many, many students in Rashi's Beit Midrash. One in particular was his grandson, the Rashbam. Um, the Rashbam, on Sefer Shemot, Adam Asia Shir, it says, Hashem bakoach, Hashem Your right hand, O oh God, is majestic. Your right hand will crush enemies. And the That's obvious question true. is, why is Yamincha written one? Twice, and not once. So Rashi gives three explanations, okay, why it's written twice, Yamincha. The first one is a Midrash. Unfortunately, how much time do we have? How much time do I have? Five minutes? Six minutes. Six minutes. Okay, so one second. Let's get there. Okay? The first, well, okay, let's, if we don't read it, we're going to lose everything. So we'll read it very quickly, okay? Um, the first one is the Midrashic answer, and it says what, that twice, I'll just read it in English, when Israel performs the will of God, the left becomes right. Your right hand, God, is majestic in might to save Israel, and your second right hand, crushes the enemy, okay? But it appears to me, Rashi says, that the very right hand crushes the enemy, that which is impossible for a man to do, to perform two tasks with one hand. Okay, so Rashi's second explanation is that not that the right becomes the left, that what? The right hand can do what? Two actions. And answer number three, but the simplest explanation of the verse is: your right hand, which is majestic in might, what is its work? Your right hand will crush the enemy. And there are many verses like this. For behold, your enemies, O God. For behold, your enemies will be destroyed. The third answer is based on biblical parallelism, right? You begin with one phrase, and the second phrase, what does it do? It completes the first. So Rashi has three explanations of what it means, right, right. Are all these explanations from Rashi himself? How, we, how do we check? What's an easy way for us to check if something is authentic to Rashi. So, you open up the HaKetzer edition from Bar-Ilan University. Notice where the arrow is. It's answer number two and answer number three. What it surrounds it? Square brackets. That's a sign that what? It's not original Tarashi. Okay? And just to show you here in the manuscript, this is the Berlin manuscript here Yamincha Yamincha. It only has the first explanation, the second and the third are missing. Another way of easily checking is going to the early printed editions of Rashi, the incunabula, the from the word incubi, the early printed editions before the year 1500. And we see here Rome 1470, Italy 1475, Alcabets 1480. It's there in the first. You could see graphically in the middle what's missing? missing. Missing, okay, and one second. And it's there in the third. So who added this commentary to Rashi? Look at the next source, the Rash, the Rashbam, this idea of Bab- biblical pr- uh, parallelism comes from the Rashbam, his grandson. Okay, we're not going to read it now together, but if you look at it yourself, the same idea is here. Okay, he's saying that the second half of the verse, what does it do? It completes the first part of the verse. Okay, so who seems to have added this to Rashi's commentary? Someone added his grandson's explanation to what? to his commentary. What's going on here? So we here have something very, very exciting. Okay? So if we look in the square box, if we look in the square box, we have textual evidence that Rashi added himself. Okay? The Balei Safo tell us the following. There's a, there's a verse in Sefer Breshid very similar with Ben Porat Yosef, Ben Porat Alei Ayin. So, what does the Balayat Tosafot tell us um, in Hebrew? Um, we can go third line down. Kol ze meyesodo Rabbi Shmuel. This idea that the second half of the verse completes the, the first part comes from whom? Rabbi Shmuel. Who's Rabbi Shmuel? Rashbam. Rashbam. Ukshahaya Rashi magia lepsukim elu tam psuke shmuel. And when Rashi would get to these kinds, these psukim, what did he call them? My nephew's my grandson's verses. Meaning, Rashi, and here I found it for you in the manuscript. Okay. Rashi was a proud grandfather, Saba. And whenever he got to these verses, what did he say? These are my grandsons, Sukim. And he added them later on in life. After he learned this principle, he added them what? Into his Bible commentary. And that's why it's missing in some others. Because his original commentary did not have that because he had not learned that from his grandson. The second what? The second, the second wasn't Correct. Correct. All right? And regarding the second explanation, you have to go back to all the manuscripts and see where is the second, where is the third, are they always missing together? Okay? Excellent point. That's a whole, I didn't have a chance to do that. <laughs> um, this just reinforces, give me two more minutes, this just reinforces what the Rashbam says regarding his grandfather in his Perush to Sefer Breshit. That's the last source. Okay? In Sefer Breshit, the Rashbam says, and, the, and also Rabbeinu Shloma, my mother's father who enlightened the eyes of the diaspora by explaining the books of the Tanakh, took note to explain the Pshutosh mikra and I, Shmuel, the son of Meir, his son-in-law, debated with him and before him, and he admitted to me that if he had had the opportunity, he would be obliged to compose new commentaries according to the Pshat interpretations that emerge anew every day. Why did Rashi emphasize Pshat? We don't, okay... There are two basic explanations given. One is the rise of the um, 12th century Renaissance where the ideas, there's more emphasis on rationalism, questioning accurate texts. The people of his generation started wanting to know what the words actually mean. And therefore, we have this rise of Pshat, Rashi, and for two generations. And the second reason is the Jewish-Christian debate we know, and Professor Berger, that's one of his expertise, is that the drash side exegesis is very often similar to what? To what the Christians were saying on the Bible. So Rashi purposely is bringing pshat to give his reader what? An answer to refute or to understand um, the implications of the text. And I just want to end off with, um, with the conclusion. Rashi's pshat commentary was not created ex nihilo. Rashi expended great energy in gathering sources from different time periods and locations to aid him in explicating the biblical text. Some sources were written, and others were oral. Today, we not only learned about some of these sources, but we actually saw them, and now you know that some of them are available online. Rashi was not intellectually frozen. He was willing and desired to constantly learn new ideas and concepts in order to improve his commentary. Why was the Pshat important to Rashi? First and foremost, The Bible is God's eternal dialogue with his beloved people, and therefore it's important to understand what the words actually mean. And additionally, Rashi understood the importance of meeting the intellectual needs of his generation and protecting his beloved people from verbal Christian attack with a responsible and sensitive Jewish leader. Our journey has now ended. You may now unfasten your seatbelts. Thank you. (laughs)